0: Uh, this is our last message out of the First Peter book together. It's been good for us to be here because of the content of what this book is about very relevant to where we are today. Though I'll say, in the first century, they faced much more difficult circumstances than we're than we're in. Uh, but regardless, it, it deals with how to walk in life, especially in times of adversity. Um, thing when things change for us and we try to adapt to a, a new sense of normal. Uh, first Peter is very relevant book for us. So we're going to look at the last four verses of, of First Peter, chapter five. So, if you have got a Bible with you, I, I do want to remind. Mind you, if you download our app, the Alpine Bible Church app, we have sermon notes there, and you can click on in the sermon notes the actual verses that we're going to be talking about, and look at the verses while we go uh, through that. Or you can get sermon notes at a resource uh, a tent, as well as we have bags there for our kids during the message. If your kids, uh, you would like for them to have some things to do, we have some some snacks and activities and kids bags at the resource tent. So, First uh, Peter chapter five, and and just to give us sort of a crude formation to how First Peter is shaped for us, if you look through the book. Uh, Peter starts in a very similar way most of the New Testament writers do uh, in the epistles and that is they lay a foundation for the identity of God and that becomes important because before you're told to do anything in response to who God is uh, you need to understand who God is right because God lays the foundation for our worldview. We don't live for ourselves I know sometimes our society would like to tell us that life is all about us and the reason you exist is solely for you but you are created for that purpose. You are created for a purpose bigger than you and, and and you find the purpose of your existence outside of you uh, because someone else made you, right? And so understanding who that, that person is or uh, that the identity of, of this uh, person that we speak of being God, chapter one, first Peter starts there, right? So he goes, chapter one, uh, uh, who God is, chapter two, your identity in God, chapter three becomes how you're able to influence based on your position in this world, no matter where you are. Chapter four talks about the adversity that you face and chapter five identifies the head of that adversity, talking about Satan. We mentioned last week that he roars around like a, like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, but he's not the real lion. The real lion is, is Jesus, and there is a way to see Satan really on a leash, in a way, based on what Peter says in the beginning of chapter 5. And now we're going to come to the end of the book. This is kind of like the so what, sort of the summation of the wrap it up of, of everything. Now we have gone through this whole picture of uh, of what peter is writing to the early church in the midst of persecution relating it to us today now we ask that important question so what and so peter's going to give us the conclusion to how we are now to respond in light of all of this and we're going to pick it up in verse 12 and then i'll back up and read the two verses previous to that but we're looking in verse 10 to verse 14 today and in verse 12 this is what he says to us i'm gonna give you just a summation of this he says take your stand if you've got the notes this morning, that's the first blank at the top. Take your stand. So, in light of all of this, now it's time to root yourself into something. So he says, he says to us, "Take your stand." And I'm going to show you in this passage where we get this from. In First Peter chapter five, verses ten, he says, "After you have suffered for a little while." Excuse me, wrong verse, chapter, uh, verse 12. Through Sylvanus, which is Silas, uh, Paul had a companion they travel with, you might be familiar, second missionary journey, Silas, also translated as Sylvanus. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And look at this stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. The HCSB is where I got take your stand. That's exactly how they translate it. Take your stand. I'll talk about why the HCSB says take your stand instead of stand firm in it. But it's the same idea, right? Stand firm. So, okay, Peter, how do we respond now that we're getting to the end of the letter here? What do we do? And he says, okay, everything that I've just said to you uh, based on the grace of God. Now, stand firm in it. Take your stand. This is an important thought for us to just uh, let our minds rest in for a minute. Take your stand. What does that look like for us today? Take your stand. You now for any of us that have, um, have an animal or a pet in the home, probably more than likely, at, at, at no point in your experience with your pet, have you ever discovered any sort of interaction where you're, with your pet where your pet is searching for meaning in life, Right? Like pet, pets tend to not be uh, the, the, the type of creatures in this world that just get depressed because they can't find meaning. Right? You have a pet, you give them a certain amount of room in life and freedom and people, and they tend to enjoy life, right? They're not, they're not the type of being that are, are looking for a place to take their stand or find some sort of meaning. But but the way that God has designed us as creatures is uh, we tend to be a little bit different. We're the only creature, I think, out of God's creation that that we, we tend to get depressed when we might live a life of purposelessness or lack meaning. And so when Peter talks about taking our stand, he's very much emphasizing uh, the, this need within us as, as human beings to to live a life of meaning and we should consider the purpose for which we strive the purpose for which we we live and i think the question that we can ask ourselves in looking at this sort of statement philosophically if we just backed off of it for a minute is how in the world can a person possibly reason an ultimate purpose in life without god Where do you go to find worth and value and meaning and, and purpose? You know, I've, I've heard people try to reason life without God. Um, C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with him, he spent his early years of life against the idea of God. And, and then the more he started to think about it, he realized that in his life, he, he had these certain complaints towards injustice. In fact, he used those as an excuse not to not to believe in God, that there were injustices in this world. And, and he, he lived a life with a certain level of morality. And then C.S. Lewis started to ask himself, how in the world could I believe that, that there's something wrong with the injustice lest I have something to measure it against? Meaning, For me to derive to a point where I I agree that there is injustice, I must therefore be arguing that there is a need for a universal justice giver. And therefore there must be a God. Or when I argue that things are immoral or not right, I'm arguing the case that there must be a moral lawgiver or someone that is is designed to make things right. And C.S. Lewis began to realize from his own argumentation in his own life, though he denied God, that he was actually arguing for the existence of God by the basis that he was arguing against God that in order to to say that we should all have morality in life and live by a certain code of morality, we're arguing the case for a moral lawgiver. Therefore, we pose the question again, how can you possibly reason an ultimate purpose without God? Some people will say, look, there is no meaning and there is no truth. Of which you can simply turn the question around and ask, well, is that question true? And does that question have meaning? I remember watching a a debate with Ravi Zacharias and he was in this open forum and he provided the audience an opportunity to come and ask questions. And this lady comes forward who does not believe in a God and from her worldview, she makes this case and her case followed the logic of her worldview, but she comes up more in an accusatory type question. And she says to Ravi Zacharias, who told you life had to be coherent and and life had to, to, to have meaning? And Ravi Zacharias responded and said, I'll answer your question. But do you want, when I give your answer, do you want it to have meaning and to be coherent? And by asking the question, he already answered her pursuit from her worldview. She's making the case that without a God, really, life has no purpose. That's, that's Richard Dawkins' stands. He says, Richard Dawkins, from his own mouth, not believing in a God, that all life is just uh, pitiless indifference. Meaning, if there is no ultimate purpose, it really doesn't matter what you do, it's based on just you as an individual. And that's what this lady is arguing, right? From her worldview, there is no coherency, no need to make things meaningful or purposeful beyond the individual. But then Ravi Zacharias makes the case, right? Well, do you want my argument to be logical and meaningful? Like, why ask questions at all if none of this matters? Why look for purpose of life? And this is what Peter is arguing for us in this whole case. He's saying, okay, now that you understand the basis for things, it, it's a time for us to take our stand. And, and one of the things that's interesting about our culture is by, by abandoning God, we have stunted our ability to provide any ultimate basis for logic, reason, or purpose. G.K. Chesterton years ago wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And, and he wrote about the modern man. So it kind of tells you a little bit how old this is because today we would be writing books more about the postmodern man, not the modern man or postmodern woman. But G.K. Chester, and listen to this, several years ago, this is what he says. The new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty. Therefore, he can never be really a revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in the way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. And the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life. And then as a philosopher, that principles... uh, as a philosopher, excuse me, principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself and wasted his life. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat off an umbrella and goes to the scientific meeting where he proves that, the, that practically they are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist being an infinite skeptic is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposelessness of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. What G.K. Chesterton is saying is, look, our society lacks a basis for anything that we're doing because we've rejected the one who gives us a basis for doing what we do. This becomes essential in what Peter is saying here, right? Take your stand take your stand, you know when I think about that phrase, though there is I, I must admit a level of concern that rises up within me when we take our stand, what exactly are we talking about as Christians? What do we think about when we hear those those words? Take your stand you now i I think we should t- not take a stand for what we think is important. brother. we talk about taking a stand. We're talking about taking a stand for what Christ says is important. Meaning our, our loyalties aren't surrendered to us, our loyalties are surrendered to him. And so when Peter says this, he's acknowledging it's by the grace of God that we're able to do this. So stand firm in it or take your stand and not, not based on ourselves, not based on what we value, but based on what Jesus values. And the reason I, I say this is because sometimes as Christians, I, I think it's, it's worthy to just pump the brakes over issues sometimes. Now, it's not to say that the topics aren't important. But sometimes the idea of topics becomes so polarizing that we forget to, to help people shape the very foundation that leads to the answers to these topics. You know what I'm saying? So let me, let me just give it like this. You know, in our society today, we've become very black and white and polarizing over issues. And I'm going to just step in it for a minute. And so I hope you give me a little grace in this, but I I want to give us uh, some examples just to reason through. I'm not going to make the issue itself the primary point, but just to reason through this. Because what's important before we ever determine an issue, the answer to an issue, isn't the issue itself. It's the worldview that shapes the foundation for which you determine the answer. So many times we set our roots down on issues and then we argue and fight over it as if whoever yells the loudest will end up winning the day. But in so doing, you lose the heart of the individuals that might be against you, heart of the individuals that might be shaping their own worldview, heart of the individuals that Jesus wants you to seek after. But rather than seek after that heart, we choose polarizing issues to stand over and we isolate ourselves from them. So when Peter's talking about taking our stand, he's not saying, look, go fight people. He's not saying, go look, make enemies of people. He's not saying that at all. He's he's more interested not in what you're doing, but who you're becoming. Does that make sense? And who you're becoming is about shaping your worldview. And when you shape your worldview, the results happen off of that. You know what we call that as Christians? Get this, make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. That's what he's saying. Help people shape a reasonable worldview. And you know what the result comes of that? The fruit of having been shaped in Jesus. Like if we start on the foundation of how can I know God, love God, and in so doing love others, it will begin to work itself out. And even even if we don't settle on the same answers together, we learn how to treat each other along the way. And that is honoring to the Lord. It's not just about choosing this hot button issue and standing on it, but helping people understand how we arrive at that. God is more interested in how the heart gets to that direction than just standing on something. And look, I stand on things. I stand on plenty of things in life. But is it more important over the issues that we stand on, losing a soul for eternity, or that the soul finds Jesus and then allows Jesus to shape their life? God is doing a work on all of us, and all of us are not perfected, and all of us are, are a work in progress. But all of us need someone to reach into our lives and, and to help us discover what it means to walk with Jesus. And so this is what I'm saying, guys. When I say the words like take take your stand, I'm not saying go into every relationship with you, wh- where you have and just be as polarizing as possible. What I'm saying is, look, if you come from a family, God is very much interested in your family. And if you're there and you can influence, God is more interested that you disciple that heart than make sure everyone in your family knows where you stand on every issue. Doesn't make the issue not important but it does make discipleship central to life. Do you know, when Jesus started his ministry, that's how he started. He goes to, to James and John in Matthew chapter four and to Peter and Andrew and he says, follow, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And Jesus ends his ministry in Matthew the same way. He looks at his disciples after his resurrection. He says, go into the world and make disciples. Like You wanna know how our country is so messed up? It's not because we're not getting on Facebook and telling everybody what they need to do. It's because we don't give people a foundation for which to believe. It's because the church doesn't make disciples. And in making disciples, you change the world. Is it pro-choice or is it pro-life? Is it Second Amendment rights or is it not? Is it black or is it white? Are you for cops or are you against them? Do you wear masks or do you not? Let me give you just an example here for a minute, okay? Having conversed in these arenas in life with people and wanting to help people shape worldviews that are biblical, godly, and honoring to the Lord and one another, I'm not perfect at this. I don't claim perfection in this, but I, I, I want to strive to walk with Jesus in this. But let me, let me just throw out some arguments that I hear in some of these cases, okay? Let me just, one example, pro-choice, pro-life. If you're familiar with the argument, the pro-choice argument it's my body, my rights. I can do what I want, right? Don't, don't you infringe on me. It's about me. Life is centered here on me and you can't tell me what to do with me. That's the arguments per choice. Pro-life is. Well, there's a bigger picture here and there's more than just your life that we're dealing with. God, and from a biblical worldview, is the creator of life. And, and if he gives life, you don't want to just take life. But the argument is, right? My body, I do what I want. Now, if you have a Christian that is pro-life that makes that argument, let me just throw in another argument for a minute. What about masks, right? You have Christians that don't believe in masks, and by the way, I'm not taking a stand on this in any degree, but a Christian doesn't, doesn't believe in wearing masks, and what's the argument for not believing in wearing a mask? My choice, my right, my body. You can't tell me what to do, you tell me what to do, then, then what's next? What are you gonna take from me next, right? You know, the irony of that argument It's the same argument that the person who's pro-choice uses. It's just, you're making it for masks. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying... I'm not saying you need to wear masks or not wear masks. I will let you work before the Lord on settling that issue and the significance of God and human life and how to help one another and love one another and best care for each other. Jesus is more interested in where your heart is on that than how that stand directly affects you. But but I'm just saying this. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? When you think about the arguments that we make that we can become hypocritical or even contradictory maybe even. And arguing if you're pro life against someone's pro choice over saying it's my rights, my life. And then we look at mass, the same thing. And I'm, I'm not trying to polarize or argue. I'm just saying, how do, how do we get to a conclusion here? How do we determine what's right? And, and here's what I'm saying it's not the issue, it's the worldview. It's the worldview. You're communicating something much deeper than just the stand that you're taking. How do you even derive to the answer to that? And when Peter talks about taking a stand, I love that he roots it because of the grace of God. Because what that's saying is, look, it's not not been about you, but it's about God's mercy that's been poured out into your life. And now take a stand on that because it's not a God that goes out and fights against people, but it's about a God who goes and fights for people. How can I best show my concern in the presentation of the gospel in this world for the human beings around me? How can I communicate the grace and goodness of God that wants to rain his mercy down on their lives to give them freedom in him and life forever? How can I represent that king and what I'm doing? Because that is my stand. When I think about anything in this world that I can stand for and all the opinions that people might know that I have, by far that supersedes all of it. That matters more than anything because that is what makes the difference at the end of the day. And if people know everything else I stand for, but they don't know that. The question is, am I really living for the king of kings and lord of lords? And this is where Peter comes and he's saying, look, church, church, we got to understand when we look at the world around us and we don't like the way things are going, if you want to make a difference, it's not about just getting all emotionally charged up and just making a statement and puking things on people, but it's about making a disciple. It's about pouring into the heart of another. And look, I, I know sometimes that sounds overwhelming because there's a world out here. And I'm not telling you we need to go make a difference in the world, but you can make a difference with the people around you right now and the way that you represent Jesus and how you pour into their lives. And it's not difficult, not complicated. I can tell you in, in my home, if you just want a picture of that, most nights of the week, not every night, we go up into our kid's bedroom, we open God's word, and we just read four or five verses and we talk about it together. And we use books that we work through together. I'd be happy to point you in some of those things. But here's what I find when we talk about God's word together. Most of the time, my kids right after that have a question. It has nothing to do with what we just talked about. And then we get to talk about, though, in that worldview. Their mind starts thinking about something else. When we're reading a passage of scripture, and we just go down that road and talk about the Lord together. And whatever that road's doing. And what are we doing? Shaping worldview. Shaping worldview. And we're, we're, we're centering it not on me. Not on us but on him. Take your stand. If we would take our stand and make disciples, and I know we've got a wonderful church of people that love others, and so I I just want to keep encouraging us to, to stand in that ground because that makes a difference. The world may fall apart, but stay faithful to Jesus. Take your stand. This grace of God, seeking, uh, seeking to to build up and and find new life in Him, and then He says this: uh, Your next blank, expect a cost. First Peter chapter five verse ten. After you have suffered for a little while, now let that resonate for a little bit. Peter's not saying, look, some of you may suffer for a little while. Peter's actually saying, after you suffer for a little while. Uh, and in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, uh, uh, in our Bible reading yesterday, we do a yearly Bible reading, which only has, I think, 60 days left in it. But but in our yearly Bible reading, and we'll start that back up in, in the fall when kids' school year starts back up. So if you want to do a yearly Bible reading, we'll announce that. But... 2nd Peter chapter or 2nd Timothy chapter 1 we looked at last week and and he just says this in verse 8 he says suffer for the gospel. Suffer for the gospel. As if it's it's just what Christians are supposed to do. Now look, I'm not telling you to go out and make your life hard. I'm not don't do that. That's not going to be helpful. <laughs> Don't go make enemies for no reason. Don't make life hard for no reason. Be intentional. There is a sacrifice in following after Jesus because you want to give towards what you think is important. And, and Peter assumes that in life of the Christian here, right? After you suffer for a little while, there is a cost. I mean, Jesus said, he who wants to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. It even tells us in John chapter 6 when Jesus made such statements like that, that the crowd left him. The crowds abandoned him. It was the disciples that followed after him, the worlds that wanted to be shaped in the worldview of what it meant to follow after Jesus. And so the crowds abandoned Jesus, but the disciples continued to pursue, though they didn't completely understand everything. The disciples stayed with Jesus. And there is a cost. Meaning, guys, I don't think it's too far to make this statement, and I'm I'm not making this flippantly, but if your Christian life doesn't cost you something, it's worth asking, is this even the Christian life? because there are so many statements in scripture that said there is an expense to following after Jesus. And of all it's been is just being comfortable. Uh, we just got to stop and ask ourselves, am I really following after Jesus? I mean, there's got to be a giving of time, effort, energy, and, and some way to pursue Jesus because pursuing Jesus is saying that he is Lord, which means he matters more than anything else in life. And so there, there is this dedication of laying down myself, uh, putting the old life away and following after him in this world. So expect, expect for us a cost and, and in doing so, I, I just want to point your attention to a, a couple of things, beautiful things, I think, uh, for us in Scripture. When you look at this passage of Scripture, you understand what it means to, that, that there is a cost in following after Jesus. What he's saying to us is, look, there is a crown to come, right? There is a glory to come. There is a crown to come. But there's always a cross before the crown, just like with Jesus. There was a cross before his crown. And I'll put in your notes this morning, if you want to look at it, something called the Old Roman Creed. And, and the Old Roman Creed is, is a beautiful history for us as Christians. Sometimes I don't think that we're real familiar with Christian history. And this is just something significant to look at. Because what this Old Roman Creed became was the Apostles' Creed. And, and then it became the Nicene Creed. And, and, the, and the Creed of Chalcinome. And, and, and so what I want to say is, like, the Old Roman Creed came in the early 2nd century. Christians from the very beginning started to write down in a concise way the theology in which they believed because it was where they took their stand. And in fact, the old Roman creed is where uh, Christians, before they were baptized, they would actually recite these creeds, these early creeds in the early church to declare to the world what they stood for as they were baptized because more than likely, following after Jesus, not only was going to cost them, but it could very easily cost them their life. In in fact, during the same time period that the early Roman creed existed, there was a man by the name of Polycarp, early church father. He was actually discipled by the apostle John. if you go back in church history, the beautiful thing is you can look at early church fathers discipled directly by the apostles. Like we don't have this, this separation in church history. We don't know what happens. Like church history is recorded for us. And Polycarp was a first generation disciples and church leader after the apostles, discipled by the apostle John. He was a pastor in Smyrna. And if you know Smyrna, it's in modern day Turkey. Book of Revelation talks about this church. He was, he was a pastor there. At 86 years old, in the middle of the second century, 86 years old, soldiers show up to his house to arrest him, to take him before the Roman proconsul. The soldiers were so uh, appalled by the fact that they're arresting an 86-year-old man that they, for a minute, almost didn't even arrest him. They thought they must be making a mistake that we're here to arrest this 86-year-old man. And the charge they're arresting him is because he's a Christian. And history tells us that when they show up to arrest him, it's so late. Uh, that Polycarp says, you know what, I'm kind of older and I don't want to make that journey. How about we stay here the night, I'll feed you in the morning, you can take me. So Polycarp serves the people that comes to arrest him. He actually feeds them and the next morning he leaves with them and he goes before the Roman proconsul for charges of being a Christian. The actual charges said that he was an atheist. And the reason they said he was an atheist, because in the, in the first century Rome, Roman people believed in so many gods, they thought it was odd that the Christians only believed in one God, that they called him atheists. And three times they said to Polycarp, renounce your faith and we'll let you live. And finally, the third time they said, look, renounce atheism. Say away with atheism. Since as a Christian, they called him an atheist. Away with atheism and we'll let you live. And Polycarp looks to all the individuals that are there at his trial and he turns to them and says, away with all the atheists. And he maintains his faith. And Polycarp is taken and martyred for his belief in Jesus. When I, when I think about early Turkey, where First Peter's written, I think about people like Polycarp, Patukistan, I think about first century church of individuals who wrote down this old Roman creed, the foundation of their faith, their belief, what they held to, their identity that shaped their worldview to make a difference in this world and the hearts of people around them. Expect a cost. And my heart today rejoices because of their faithfulness. Expect a cost, but the follow up is this expect a cost, but a greater reward. And that's the last blank there are point to, but a greater reward. Notice what he says, guys, like I mean, he's honest in verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, there is some sacrifice to following Jesus, but you get to demonstrate your value of Jesus above all things in that. He even says in verse 13, that she who is in Babylon chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Peter even says in verse 13, look, um, he's not going to say I'm writing from Rome because he doesn't want to identify the Christians. He uses this pseudo word. He says, he refers to Babylon. You know, we're writing from Babylon, which is a way of saying in, in Peter's modern day, we're writing from Rome, but we don't want to tell you that because we don't want to put a target on our back on that necessarily. So the church is kind of underground here at this point as they're living for Jesus. They're just not making a spotlight on themselves, even though they're proclaiming Christ. And so there is some sacrifice, but there's also a reward. And look what he says here. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, look at this, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And what he's saying is this, look, when we talk about going through hard things. I know, I know what the response is. Like anytime you think about anything, it's going to take some sweat equity. You stop and think to yourself, can I do this? <laughs> is this in me? And before you could even start looking at you to see if this is within you, Peter says, no, 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 no. Look to him. Look to him. It's not about what you do in your strength. It's about what he does in you through his strength, right? The God of all grace, he will, he will. And what does he say? He gives us four words, right? Gives us four words here. He says, he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And this is what he means. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. You're saying, okay, well, okay, God, if you're going to do that, what's that going to look like? Well, this word, this word perfect, Uh, It it comes from the same word of mending. Like when, when Jesus called the apostles in the very beginning of Matthew 4, it tells us he goes by their boats and they're mending their nets. And he says, follow me. They're doing that mending, that perfecting. They're restoring what was lost. And so Jesus is saying, look, you're going to go through this world and you're going to get bumps and bruises. Jesus was honest with us. And in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, you're going to have trouble in this world, but rejoice because I have overcome. I mean, Jesus is uh, uh, he's, he's straightforward with us in that you're going to go through life. There will be bumps and bruises along the way. There will be adversity and hardship. There, it's going to be there, but Jesus, Jesus mends, Jesus restores, Jesus perfects it. Jesus make, makes things like when you go through this world and you're like, I, I'm broken and, and we have lost. And Jesus says, now I'm going to restore everything the way it should be. Like, I, I know this is a little superficial, but I'm getting that place in life where, like, I look in the mirror and it seems like every day I grow a new wrinkle and a new gray hair. I start to count those things, right? I'm like, what's going on in the sides of my head here? I cut my hair shorter so you can't see the gray. And, and, and then, but then, then you read verses like this and you're like, but Jesus, Jesus is going to restore me. And I know that's superficial, but you think beyond just the outward appearance, like, I, I can't see, I can't see what's happened to your soul. And the struggles you faced and the way that's marked your life. I mean, we could watch the outward appearance of our lives sort of diminish over time. Maybe, or maybe that's just me, <laughs> but, but, but there's also an internal part of us as well, right? That you just can't see on the outside. And, and I think when Jesus talks about this mending, he's holistically talking about all loss, everything we've gone through in this world. He mends it, he, he perfects it, he confirms it, which means not only that, but he, he roots you in something. It's like if you ever lay a deck and you want to put the pillars in the ground to put your deck in, it's like he, he, he firms you up, he confirms you in that ground as if this is your place, this is where you belong. And that's what he's saying in you. He confirms you in this way, and then the next word is he strengthens you, which means, you ever think about when you, when you build a house, there's a difference between a house and a home, right? So when Jesus confirms you, he's sort of like laying this house, but it still doesn't make it a home. You've got to fill it, not with just possession, but also the memories that make it what it is, that place that you long for, right? And Jesus is saying, look, that's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to, I'm going to make what's broken new and restore it. And I'm going, to, I'm going to firm you up, build that house, but not just leave it there. I'm going to fill it. I'm going to fill it with the things that just make it complete, that make you understand that this is your home. And then he says, I'm going to establish you forever, which is, he's saying, like, this, this is going to be the way it will always be because of what I am going to do. And so it's that prize that we long for and look toward in him. This is why you stand, because this, this world is temporary. But what you have in him is Forever. Forever, So he says, expect a cost, but but a greater reward. And then in verse 11, as if the, the mic drop here, he says, to him be dominion forever, meaning his rule will not end. And so the reason that you know you have that is because it's promised in him and God doesn't lie. And because there is no end to him, his dominion forever, thus his promises are true for you forever, which makes his promises more valuable than any promise in this world. You know, I try to think about what this looks like mentally in, in my mind, and, and I think of September 11th, right? It's hard for me to believe that today there are kids graduating high school that weren't even alive when that happened, but, but September 11th, if you remember watching the TV screens, if, if you could even think for a moment, what it would have been like to be on the ground floor, right, to, to September 11th, and that building's hit, and you're running away, and, and all of a sudden you hear this loud noise, and this puff of smoke just engulfs you, and you turn around to look back. And you're hoping that what, what you've just experienced isn't, isn't, isn't about to be true. But when you turn around and you wait for the dust to settle, what do you see? It's gone. It's all gone. Brought to rubble. And what Peter is saying in this passage is this exact opposite. That this world may feel like a giant bomb being dropped on your house. But in Jesus, when that dust settles, the house stands and it remains. It's there. It endures. All that you have in Christ forever with him. So expect a greater reward. And and then in verse 12 and 14, we just read the very last section here, all of us together. He says, through Sylvanus or Silas, our faithful brothers, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Now, I'm not even going to touch that last verse of the 10-foot pole in, in COVID-19 there, right? Um, we're, not, we're not practicing verse 14 today, but... Um, But but he's saying something important to us, and and this is what he wants us to recognize, guys. When we talk about living this way, what he's saying is this, um, don't stand alone. When you talk about take your stand, Peter is so important in in just saying to the church going through a hard time, look, and you're not going through this alone. There's, There's Silas who's with you. There's Mark who's with you. All the church in Babylon is with you. I'm writing this letter to you. I'm with you. It's important that we not go through this alone. And this world is broken, right? And you can't directly fix everything that people go through because you don't have all power in this world. But you know the one who does. And sometimes people don't want you just to show up and try to fix everything. They just want, you to, know, they just want to know that you care and that you want to be present with them. And that 's what Peter is saying in this passage is, "Look, we can try to continue to mend this broken world, but ultimately this world's going to come to an end, and we know everything's going to be perfected in Jesus, but while we walk this journey together, look, it is important that we do not do this alone. In fact... When you see that phrase, take your stand or stand for a minute, the reason some translations say take your stand and some just say stand for a minute is because they're trying to emphasize two things in the Greek that they can't fully captivate in just a few words. The translations that say take your stand, what they want us to understand is, look, he's not saying this to an individual Take your stand is, is written in a plural form. And so that, you, that your becomes important. This is for all of God's people collectively. He's not saying this to an individual in the church. He's saying this to the whole church. Look, church, take your stand. Root yourself here. So it's important that we understand that we need to stand firm. But it's also important that we need to stand firm together, Right? That's why I think when we, we consider our, our minds making disciples, one of the greatest gifts that you can do on a Sunday morning is to come with the mentality of, I'm going to serve Jesus in these moments by being a, an encourager to the community. In fact, when Peter writes about Silas, uh, what, he, what, what the Bible tells us in, in Acts chapter 15, verse 32 of Silas, it says this that he encouraged and strengthened believers. The mark of his life of which Luke records in the book of Acts in chapter 15, what he says of Silas is he was an individual uh, that encouraged and strengthened believers. I think that's why Paul took him on his missionary journeys. It's like, look, we're going to go all over the place and people are going to go through some hard things. Sometimes the church is just, they're getting martyred for their faith. What kind of individual do I need when we walk in a world that doesn't, isn't always roses? I need someone to encourage and strengthen As when we talk about being a people that take a stand, what do you need? Well, you're going to get bumps and bruises. We need God's people to encourage and strengthen. I think that's how we disciple and shape worldview. Encourage and then strengthen. When I um, think about this this passage of Scripture, it reminds me of the story of Peter in Matthew 17, where... Peter goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and he sees the glory of Jesus made known in Matthew 17. And, and the Father speaks in those moments and the glory cloud, the presence of the Spirit is there. And, and Peter makes this statement to Jesus. He says, Master, it was good for us to be here. Or Rabbi, it was good for us to be here. And Peter, Peter knew how much the presence of God had changed his life just being there in those moments. And then Jesus looks to Peter and, and the, he's, he agrees and he says, look, now we've got to go back down into the valley. And the point of all that to say is, guys, when I read 1 Peter chapter 5, my soul says for us as a church, it was good for us to be here. It's good for us to be here because we get a glimpse of the goodness of who our God is. But here's the reminder too. And then being filled up in the goodness of our God we need to go down to the valley, meet people where they are, and encourage them in Jesus. Uh, Susanna Wesley, mother of John and Charles Wesley, um, was alive in the 1600s and died in early or mid to early 1700s. And uh, during her life, her father was a minister, a Protestant minister, and actually loses his position as a Protestant minister because of laws made in England against Protestant ministers. And she grew up in a very difficult circumstance, rough life. She ends up having 17 children, two of which were John and Charles Wesley, who started the Methodist church. And, and um, you, know, you can know some of that story. But when she died, her, her epitaph, though she lived a difficult life, I mean, 17 kids, right? <laughs> she, a woman's got some energy, right? But, but she's, it says this on her epitaph. It says, ensure and certain hope to rise and claim her mansion in the skies. A Christian hear her flesh laid down, the cross exchanging for a crown. I love that. It's a beautiful story. It's acknowledging both the hardship of which she faced in this world And the glory which is to come. When we end this book together. I think that's where Peter's heart desires for us to be. Not to ignore the fact that life's got adversity. But to simply say to us. But there's something greater that has shaped your life in him. And it changes all life. And it can forever make a difference. And that difference is the gospel. And can I just tell you if you're here today and you feel lost and, and you wonder which way is up in these moments. Like we find that, we experience that often in church. I mean, I've walked that path in life. Like There is a God, the only God, who loves you. He created you to know him. He created you to have your life surrendered to him because what he wants to offer you is greater than anything this world has. The problem is in our lives, we're also sinful, which means before God, he is perfect and we're not. And to enter into his presence, we must be perfected of which we can't do in our own nature. People try, they create religion and law, but we can't do it. And no matter how hard you try no, no amount of trying can undo the wrong that we've done. So here's what God did. He became flesh and died for you in your place. God took on flesh 2,000 years ago and went to the cross and took the punishment that you deserve that you could find freedom in him if, if you give your life to Christ. God will substitute his life for yours if you want him, if you embrace him, but he won't force it. Friends, that's the cry of scripture. Jesus shaped my life or not. And honestly, believers, that's the life that we live every day. Every day you have the choice, autonomy or the Lord. And when we walk in His path, we walk in the promises of all the goodness that is to come. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.